This is Comscast, podcast by the Department of Communications and the Arts. Hello and thanks for listening to Comscast, a podcast by the Department of Communications and the Arts. Through our podcast, we're hoping to explore issues within our portfolio, whether they're emerging communications technologies, policy or program delivery issues. It's a fact that much of modern life is underpinned by the media we consume and how we work, communicate and socialise online. So if you're interested in the communication sector or the interaction between it and modern Australian life, then this podcast is for you. And we want to hear from you. If you've got any ideas for stories, feedback or suggestions, tweet us at comsau. In this episode, we'll find out about the latest Australian communications and media consumption trends from the ACMA. We have these apps that we can use on our mobile phones and on our computers at home that allow us to do things like make voice calls that we used to rely on a telecommunications provider to provide in the past. And we'll speak to Dr Paul Patterson about his role in heading up the work of the Bureau of Communications Research. We've got some exciting and excited people working with us in the Bureau. Uh, We all realise we've got a great opportunity to make a difference by providing that evidence base for policy development and advice. But first, Louisa spoke to Alistair McGibbon about serious online bullying affecting children. Sadly, cyberbullying is a fact of modern life for many Australian children. In fact, last year a government report found that about one in five Australian children aged between 8 and 17 will suffer from cyberbullying each year. The huge increase in network devices also means that there are now more ways than ever for children to be bullied, whether it's through gaming devices, social media platforms, or even apps. This is an increasingly complex environment, and parents or guardians of children who experience serious cyberbullying can often feel powerless to intervene. But the new office of the eSafety Commissioner means that action can be taken. Now, as an office, we deal with serious cyberbullying, and let me try to define that for you. Serious cyberbullying is defined as uh, information uh, directed at an Australian child uh, that is seriously intimidating, threatening, harassing or humiliating. So we're dealing with a subset of that group of Australian children who suffer online. Far too many, of course, even if those numbers were lower. Um, but we've been set up to help address that serious cyberbullying material. We sat down with Alistair McGibbon, Australia's first e-safety commissioner, to chat about what the office is doing to tackle this problem. The legislation that set up the office gave us powers uh, to take down serious cyberbullying material. And uh, so we run a complaints-based scheme there where parents and trusted adults and children themselves come to us and tell us of uh, incidents that are occurring and we take that material down. And we're taking that material down by the time we notify to a social media service, it's taking less than 10 hours. Uh, The social media services that are participating in that scheme uh, include Instagram and Facebook, Google+, YouTube, uh, Twitter, AskFM, uh, Yahoo Answers, Yahoo Groups and Flickr. So a pretty wide range of the social media services that kids are using. We also have an end user notice provision where we can actually go out after the person who is posting the material either online or sending SMSs um, or using other electronic means uh, basically to get them to cease and desist. So that's the sort of what I call the response side. And then most importantly, 
we think it's best to prevent cyberbullying happening in the first place. And that's the education role. Uh, the office was the grateful uh, recipient or inheritor of uh, uh, the ACMA's CyberSmart program, uh, which was very effectively rolled out in schools for over a decade. And so we still do those schools-based programs. We have just certified our first uh, not-for-profit and for-profit cyber safety providers also going into schools where we will actually make all of that collateral available to them uh, to also be uh, reaching out to schools. Uh, and we're doing a lot more to actually educate parents and uh, significant adults around children as well so that they're there for kids and they help guide them online just as we would expect them to be guiding them in their offline lives. So what is the process if you have a complaint? As a complaint uh, is made, we ask the complainant, our, our web form asks the complainant to give us the URLs that will point us to the material, to take screenshots and other such things. And uh, our investigative and complaints handling staff look at the material itself and some of it, you know, within seconds of looking at it, it is quite clearly serious. And, it, and we also ask the complainant uh, to tell us about how uh, the material is impacting them. Because sometimes it's a bit more nuanced. In fact, the first complaint we handled as an office, uh, the material was actually harmful to the targeted child because of other issues in that child's life. In this case, they had uh, other uh, physical issues and some mental issues that meant that... Uh, the material that was being generated and targeted against them online was particularly damaging to them. And, and the parents were able to articulate that to us so that we could have that material removed to give that child and indeed the family the chance to actually uh, have breathing space and to seek counsel. The other thing we do, even by the way, if we reject the matter as not being serious, is we'll always go back to the complainant and ask them whether we've misinterpreted it. Um, we refer people uh, to Kids Helpline uh, who we're in a formal relationship with and uh, people can do that either via directly via our website which links into theirs so they can do online counselling and they can do the 1800 phone number uh, counselling and so we, we've, we've in the first three months of operation sent well over 600 referrals to Kids Helpline in the first three months and those numbers continue to stack up in the, the second quarter of our operations. And we also provide information directly back to complainants, point them to parts of our site that give them uh, the skills to be able to take down material themselves. Sometimes they can actually do that themselves depending on which social media service. So we're trying to empower people and we're giving families information so they can have conversations. And lastly, and sorry for the long answer, is we're working directly with schools. If we believe there's a strong nexus to a school, we'll work with the school uh, and sometimes the police uh, to help bring the, uh, the, the, the parties involved together to help solve this uh, because it often has physical aspects as well. So we, even if it doesn't meet our threshold of serious, we're still providing a lot of information, referrals to counselling and other things, because if it's serious enough for someone to complain to us, we take that matter seriously enough to be able to give information back so that no person leaves uh, unhelped. The question is whether we use our act to take down the material.
So I guess the reason why the service you provide is such an important one is because in some scenarios, someone who's being bullied may have parents who aren't really up to speed with the technology and don't really understand the impact of bullying on younger people. Would you agree with that? Uh, parents and older people often don't understand the significance that, that the online world has uh, in the lives of young Australians. And I always rail against people talking about, well, this happens online and then in the real world, this other thing happens. I keep trying to say to people, there is no distinction between on and offline, particularly for Australian kids. We need to view anything that happens online as seriously as something that happens offline. That's the first thing. The second thing is my barbecue test. Um, and, and, and or barbecue conversations. And those barbecue conversations with parents generally say this to me. One, I don't understand the technology my kids are using. And then the second statement that they'll make is, and I don't understand the way they're using that technology. So we as uh, adults uh, need to understand the technology kids are using. And then perhaps even more importantly, the way they're using it because they do use it very differently. And until we get ourselves in their shoes, and we understand how they're using it, we can't be there for kids when something goes wrong. Um, and then the third observation I'd make is one that in many respects, the Australian population, I believe, has been almost conditioned into thinking nothing can be done online. Once something's up, uh, when my child is being targeted, uh, this is it. I can't do anything. I, occasionally I'll make a complaint to a social media service. They'll either act or they won't act. There's no one for me to go to once they've made that decision. Well, we as an office are that place to go to once that decision's been made. If you're not satisfied as, as, an, as an Australian parent or as an Australian child that the material should have come down and it hasn't been taken down, we can and do take that material down. We are trying to re-educate the public into actually believing that there is something that can be done about material that is harming Australian children online and we're effectively doing that. But that's a big shift to turn because we've had uh, quite some time of actually thinking, look, this whole internet thing, once it's out there, no one can do anything about it. Now, we can't promise we can do everything for everyone, but we can do uh, many things for as many people as we can and to change that mindset, which helps bring us closer the offline world and the online world in terms of social expectations. So what's your advice for parents who think their child might be being bullied online? Well, we've put a, an awful lot more advice on our site, esafety.gov.au, uh, directly for parents. In fact, in coming months, uh, you'll see us really rolling out much more information there, helping parents go beyond cyberbullying uh, and the advice for cyberbullying, by the way, is be there for your kids. Have conversations with your kids before they fall into trouble because then you can be there when they, they do meet trouble. But we're giving a lot more advice, a lot more advice on uh, everything from how to keep uh, your, your devices more secure, changing privacy settings, uh, how to have conversations with kids uh, on the hard issues of the web. And we will invest way more heavily in that in 2016 because when you work in this space long enough you realize that this has to be a partnership with families whatever however they're constituted uh, and trusted adults with kids just like uh, the offline world is about trusted adults raising kids the same has to happen online and 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 yes we're in schools and that's a great place where you can capture the vast bulk of australian children but we're also expanding out into sporting and community groups, 
because we know that's a great place to influence kids online. And frankly, we're going to win on the web as well. So we're going to make sure that in social media, uh, we're, we're active and, and have a strong voice and that people listen to us. And that, that, that when you do a search for individual questions that you're encountering online uh, about how to raise kids or kids Googling or uh, binging questions about certain things that they see online, that we're going to have those answers popping up pretty high in search to help give them some guidance. We, 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 we need to win on the web because it's on the web that we're trying to have our influence. This is Comscast. It's a familiar scene across Australia, relaxing in the evening in front of the TV while scrolling through Facebook on a smartphone or tablet device. Over recent years, this scenario has been termed multi-screening, which describes the use of multiple devices at any one time. But even this relatively new behaviour in how we consume media or communicate with each other is changing rapidly. New services coined over-the-top services are providing consumers with more options. The Australian Communications and Media Authority has published the latest in a series of reports that looks into the way Australians are communicating with each other. The report found that Australians were indeed going over the top. It's a term that's used to describe an important change in the way communication services are being delivered. Yes, traditionally, the company that provided you with the communications infrastructure, the, 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 the fixed line, the telephone, that sort of thing, provided you with the service that went over that, the telephony service. But with the internet, of course, we have these apps that we can use on our mobile phones and on our computers at home that allow us to do things like make voice calls that we used to rely on a telecommunications provider to provide in the past. Hugh Clappen is the Manager of Research and Analysis at the ACMA. He spoke to us about over-the-top services and how Australians are embracing these technologies. If you use Skype over the internet, that's a telephone-like service that's not being provided by your network provider. So that's, that's this term, over the top. And there's been a big growth in recent years that the ASMA has been monitoring of the extent to which people are taking up these over-the-top services. So the examples, typical examples would be Facebook Messenger or Skype, Apple iMessage, FaceTime. These are all different ways of communicating, whether it's a phone call, a, a FaceTime kind of video call, or just a messaging service that is operated over the top of the internet. So how popular are over-the-top technologies in Australia? Over half of Australian adults, 54% of Australian adults, now use an app to communicate with others. And that might be sending messages, making voice calls, and making video calls. Um, Similarly, in this over-the-top world, we've got subscription video, online TV, the delivery of television-like services over the top of the internet. And again, people will, most people will be aware that Netflix launched this year, that Stan and Presto have launched and have been providing subscription video on demand services. And of course, Catch Up TV has been uh, increasing significantly in the sector for the last couple of years as well. So with these subscription video on demand services, how popular are these platforms? I mean, it seems as though everyone's got a subscription these days or are swapping tips about the best programs on Catch Up TV. So we find that a third of Australian adults, 34% of Australian adults, watch some form of online TV, professionally produced online content of some sort, in the past seven days. So in the average week, a third of Australian adults are watching online TV. It's another over-the-top service. Um, And, for example, in that week in June, 11% watch Netflix, and that's just a few months after Netflix has launched. Wow, that is an amazing take-up rate. 
And we know that these services are data hungry because they're pulling down high definition video content. Have you got any information about the amount of data that's being used? Data continues to increase. And what's interesting, if you look, first of all, just the amount of data, the amount of data increased 40% on last year. So we're still continuing to increase the amount of data. You can then look at the detail of how much of that was over a, um, a mobile service and how much was over a fixed service. And traditionally, of course, fixed services, you expect to carry more data. That's where you do your heavy data operations is usually on a fixed service. Well, what we're seeing is that the rate of increase in data is bigger in the mobile services than in the fixed. So fixed services, we increased about 40%, whereas the amount of data Australians downloaded on their mobile device increased by 85%. So we're seeing that the rate of increase of data downloads on mobile devices is greater than the still very high rate of increase of data downloads on fixed devices. So how are our networks responding to this demand? Are they coping? I think industry is responding. Another one of the key findings was the rollout of infrastructure uh, in the communications area. Take 4G. 4G is the new, the faster kind of mobile data service that all three of the mobile network operators, Telstra, Optus and Vodafone, are now offering. And over 90% of the population has now got access to 4G services. So that's one way in which the infrastructure in the last year has really rolled out. Similarly, we see the MBN is increasing its number of households, that it's the premises that are serviceable by the MBN. Now, that's more than double. There's over 1.1 million households now serviceable by the MBN. So those figures clearly demonstrate that consumers are taking advantage of these services, but how are commercial models responding? How are these businesses going to be sustained? One measure of that is, of course, advertising expenditure. And one thing we've looked at is advertising expenditure across different media, including online. And what we see is that online spending continues to increase. Um, And we've got online expenditure um, on advertising grew by 16%. We've got $4.6 billion being spent on online advertising. Does this mean that the revenue models for the traditional broadcast mediums have been threatened? Free-to-air continues uh, to be a very strong player in the uh, content delivery. So if you look at, say, the advertising spend data, what I think is really interesting is whilst we've got this clear growth in spend on online advertising, the advertising spend for free-to-air TV and for radio is really quite solid. It's basically flat within a couple of percentage points. So you're not seeing big changes there. You're seeing year-on-year television and radio advertising spend very similar. Indeed, a little bit of an increase in radio advertising spend. Similarly, if you look at just eyeballs at people watching TV, we've still got 85% of Australians watching free-to-air TV in a given week in around June this year. And we also looked at time spent. We asked people, how much time are you spending watching free-to-air TV versus things like subscription video on demand or catch-up TV? And in that area, what you see is that about 59% of the time spent watching this kind of professional TV like video content is being spent watching free-to-air TV. And that's by far the majority and the biggest chunk of time. So broadcasting is still very strong, but part of the bigger picture of different ways of people finding access to uh, communications and media and content services. 
So really, to summarize, it seems as though consumers are currently spoilt for choice about how they communicate, what media they consume, and how they consume it. I think choice is a really good point. We see that the range of applications that people use, there's a big choice and people are making use of that choice. People are choosing whether, they've got a choice now about whether they use their mobile operator to make their mobile phone call or they use Skype or some other kind of app like that to make their mobile call. So people people are taking up those choices and we're seeing quite an array of communication services being offered and being taken up. Hugh, thank you. We've all heard the term evidence-based policy and it sounds fantastic, doesn't it? until you actually try and develop policy based on evidence. And then it's not so simple. In the communications sector, the technology is rapidly evolving, businesses are entering and exiting the market, and consumer behavior is also changing. So how do you get a grip on what's actually happening and identify those policy problems and provide evidence to inform a policy response? It's almost as though government needs a specialist research unit ready to respond to government priorities at any time. Well, at the Department of Communications and the Arts, we've got one. It's called the Bureau of Communication Research and it's headed by Dr. Paul Patterson. The Bureau was set up to bring uh, a strong evidence base, a strong research and analysis capability to the Department of Communications as it was at the time. Uh, The Department of Communications was a specialised policy department. It had very little program delivery responsibilities. Its specialisation was policy development and advice. And the secretary at the time, the head of the department, rightly recognised that to do that excellently, you needed a strong evidence base for doing it. The Bureau was created for that purpose, and that's the objective that I've bought into. The objective of the Bureau is to provide Uh, a a sound evidence base for policy development and advice Uh, and as part of that to stimulate informed public policy and debate. So key words there, evidence-based, informed and policy-relevant, focused on policy. Dr Patterson, you feel a special affinity for the communications sector, is that right? First up, I'm an economist. I've been an economist all my career Uh, In fact, a few years ago, I was inducted into the economics faculty at the ANU Hall of Fame. Uh, I think it was largely on the fact that I've stayed so long in the profession rather than being a particular uh, merit in the profession, but nonetheless, there you have it. So I'm an economist. I've worked in communications, in telecommunications and media for the past 25 years. In fact, I go back beyond that. My father was in the PMG and used to come home in a big red van and take us kids for a ride around the block. So I'm steeped in communications, if you like, and can still remember the smell of the old uh, electric switches in the telephone exchanges. Um, I have an abiding interest and an ongoing interest in communications. Uh, And these days, in the underpinning research for good communications policy, So how does economics inform policy development? Economics in this area is all about markets working well. Uh, That is, markets producing outcomes that result in 
services being provided at a low cost, provided in a technically efficient way, if you like. Uh, it's about markets working in a way where the nation's resources are allocated to their highest value use. And it's markets working in a way that stimulates levels of investment and innovation that take things forward, that provides the services for the future. That's where economics comes in, and that's its unique contribution. It thinks about that broad spread of economic efficiency. So the communications sector is very large, it's dynamic. How do you go about gauging the health of the sector or its output or its contribution to the economy? One of the things we're interested in in the Bureau, and I'm personally interested in, is developing a robust set of leading indicators for the communication sectors. That is, indicators that give you uh, some insight as to what's unfolding in the future. The classic example of a leading indicator is in the construction sector whereby people look at building approvals, which gives a very strong indication of what construction will be in 6, 12, 18 months' time. Uh, If approvals go up, you can rely on construction going up uh, with a lag in the future. That's the sort of thing we're looking at. We've had a few shots at that. We put out some interesting things, but really it hasn't quite nailed it yet. What we want to do is focus in on, well, what are the things we're really interested in knowing uh, in terms of shifts in the future, shifts in trends, switch points, turning points uh, in the future, and we're still in the process of working through on that. Something that will help us a lot in that regard is a strategic issues framework we're developing, which is really a mud map of the communication sector, how it's structured, how it engages across the whole economy, how it engages within the different parts of the sector, uh, and what are the key trends and drivers of those trends, what are the switch points coming up, uh, and what are the policy implications. In building that model, it will become clear to us, I believe, uh, what are the leading indicators we really want. Uh, And we'll focus in on those, we'll think hard about what are the things that can give us those indications of switch points coming up, uh, and build a, a series around that. That sounds like a very ambitious project. Is there any similar work underway in the private sector that the BCR could leverage off? It's interesting you ask that, actually. Uh, I've been thinking about this and talking to some people, and I had a conversation a couple of months ago which brought home something to me very strongly. I said to someone, who do you think are the, or what do you think are the leading uh, research forums or bodies around the world in the communication sector and they said it's obvious it's Google it's Amazon it's Facebook it's Apple they're the ones that have got all the data on what's going on they're the ones that have got the money to do in-depth research employ really smart people uh, and teams of them they're the ones that really know what's going on Uh, somehow we need to plumb that uh, and draw it out to my mind that's critical Uh, they've got information and insights that we don't have they've got experience out there in those markets that we're interested in in understanding uh, and understanding what government involvement in those markets might be Um, so yes indeed that's a critical part of the process engagement with the private sector Uh, in fact it goes beyond just understanding their views for us to leverage the limited resources we've got in the bureau of communications research 
we're seeking to collaborate with the private sector to do some joint work, uh, to do some secondment arrangements, two-way secondments, one-way secondments, uh, to share data with them uh, as part of the government's open data initiative announced in recent times. Uh, we're, work we're looking to work closely with the private sector and not just the uh, commercial side of it, but the research community in Australia uh, and across the world, including key institutions like Ofcom, the regulator in the UK, who do path-breaking work in terms of understanding the communication sector, the OECD, who again do path-breaking policy-type work, uh, and of course with researchers here in Australia. So if industry are listening to this and they would like to be part of the work program, what should they do? Go to our website, go to the Department of Communications and the Arts website. Um, you'll find the Bureau there prominently uh, and get in touch with us that way. I'd be delighted to hear from you. Uh, we want to engage. Thanks, Paul. Can you let us know what the BCR is working on at the moment? At this point in time, we've got a couple of publications ripe to come out. In fact, they may be out in the market before this podcast. There's a publication on the contribution of the digital platform to growth in labour productivity. Uh, that's a piece of work that replicates earlier work done by the Productivity Commission and adds some new dimensions to it. That work shows in round terms that across the economy, on average, uh, the digital platform, in fact, to be specific, investment in information technology capital contributes about one quarter, 25% of growth in labour productivity over time. A very substantial contribution from what is a small sector of the economy. That's one piece of work. Another piece of work is a study we've done on the economic impact of open government data. How does the opening up of the data that it's got to public use by government impact the economy and what's the magnitude of that impact. We've looked at that and have published a report uh, around that uh, which you'll be able to see on our website. Two pieces of work there. It sounds like a really exciting time for the BCR and I'd love to have you back on the podcast in the future to talk about uh, what work the BCR is undertaking and any of the policy issues that you're grappling with. We've got some terrific people on board. We've got some exciting and excited people working with us in the Bureau. Uh, we all realise we've got a great opportunity to make a difference by providing that evidence base for policy development and advice. You've been listening to ComsCast.